I think that we can't, we shouldn't ignore the audit problem just because these aren't public companies because they actually do influence what's happening in the public markets and our economic infrastructure. Yeah, that's well, why I care. If you're concerned about audits, I mean, I think you should do the Dougal's thing and buy a bunch of Chinese companies. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Top of the morning to you, man. Top of the morning. Top of the muffin? Is that Seinfeld? That's Seinfeld. Oh, that was I love quick. That, episode. that was quick. Wow. What's up? The market's, the market's up. up. I only follow Chinese stocks now. I don't know what's happening in the. Oh, that, that's not up then. That's not up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, a nice week for me. If I stop joking and talk about my my value stuff was pretty far up this week. Oh, nice. Very happy for you. Good work. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm feeling good too. Now now that Tal like doesn't even, its movement doesn't even matter for me. My my portfolio can now start to ascend. So it feels it's it's pretty nice. Man, was it last week we talked about Baba? Yeah, pretty sure. That's so hot right now. Not only have I seen other podcasts uh, dive in, but like I've seen so many articles. I mean, it seems like the most talked about stock in the like niche investing community. It does, which gives me even more pause as to whether or not this would be a time to get in. I think there's there's still too much clamor around it, but 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 it is. It's I. Like I've seen it everywhere. I mean, yeah. it's, it's as if it's as if the company didn't exist before. And now, I mean, we would read about it, you know, before too. But it, like, the amount of heat that's around it is, uh, it seems as if it's like a new shiny object. But, yeah, it's. I I didn't actually tell you this. I took a small position, um, less than I would have normally. in the box. I took a small position, and um, if it gets back down to you know one thirty was where we we really get intrigued. Um, I, I'll I'll double down or triple down. But I Ooh. just as I finished up my research, well, no, it's more it's more small position than anything else. I was willing to take a flyer on it at its current price point. You went from I want nothing to do with this country I've heard of called China. I know, and it's and it's financials to I mean it's they're they're you're just still just dabbling, but uh, yeah, and still. We have to see what happens, like regulatory wise, obviously, but China could continue to be such an amazing play over the long term, depending on what they uh, what they end up like the foundation that the government ends up setting up right now. Right. They, they, all this stuff actually could be net positive for them infrastructurally over the long yeah. term. It's just like really sucky in the near term. Right. If, if they're just like, we got to get all this this gobbledygook out of the way. Like in order for us to to feel comfortable ourselves as their government, right, with things growing, and in order for um to have the foundation we need, it could be possible. We'll see. Well, remember, maybe two months ago we talked about the lying flat movement, yeah, and the rebellion against the nine nine six culture, which is yep. working six days a week from nine a.m. to nine p.m. I read that the government took a really st- strong stance against that this week now it wasn't clear to me from the article i read what exactly that means like i don't think they came out and said like you can't do this anymore but some of those i'd call it an infrastructural change but it's not really that like some some movement away to a little more leisure which could be more 
time to spend and enjoy could social infrastructure. Uh, yeah, it, it can reshape the economy in ways. You're right, though. Like, I'm still not comfortable over there. None of my positions are. I mean, they would. None of them would even bother me if they went to zero. But in the probabilistic outcome game, uh, I feel like there's some significant upside with with a few picks. But it's it's an interesting world out there right now. I'm enjoying taking a look and watching this movie unfold. So we will we will see. But he definitely, I'm continuing to keep an eye there. And the whole world, is, I don't even have to do any real work to keep an eye on Alibaba because the world just feeds me <laughs> information about it. Um, but yeah, I'm watching it. I'm going to watch it until it dips down a little more to see if I have any real interest. Yeah, so when I think about the world and exciting times, I usually think about, actually, this happens to me probably every six months. I think back to a time when I was in Italy and I found a hot dog wrapped in a pretzel from a street vendor. And I think that street vendor also sold me a Red Bull and I was like crazy jet lagged. And, you know, I think back to that meal and how amazing it was and how it was really life changing for me. But the the thing that I learned this week is it actually was life changing. It probably cost me like two hours off my life. Whoa. <laughs> because according to the New York Post, and this will be the first and last time we ever reference the New York Post on this podcast. Eating one hot dog takes 35 minutes off your life, Dougals. What does that do for Joey Chestnut on an annual basis? <laughs> I think that's where everyone went. I think that exact question was like the question on all social media when this probably haphazard um, study came out. You don't think this was a like a deep academic study that was a joint <laughs> venture between MIT and, and Haas or something? I hope our international listening base understands that we're uh, pretty much taking this with a grain of salt. I mean, I it's it's got to be one of those things that just for conversation piece, they claim if you have a 85 gram serving of chicken wings, it translates into 3.3 minutes of lost life. I'm sure that's perfect, right? It's it's not 3.2 minutes, Dougals, it's 3.3. I mean, <laughs> like, come on. The, the amount that we don't know about the human physiology, right? <laughs> To be able to get to like a level of precision of what a chicken nugget does for you, like I am more power to you in New York Post. Keep keep putting out that deep <laughs> investigative journalism. All right, can I fishbowl it? Wait, no, I gotta say one more thing. Okay, oh. you know what's what's sad about that is I bet there's some people reading that being like, oh damn, I'm I'm shorting Oscar Meyer, man. This is really bad news for the hot dog industry. Like, <laughs> well, depending on. How much you've saved up for retirement you might be like i actually need to eat some more hot dogs so i can i can actually make my <laughs> that's it's uh, a dual approach to retirement savings you're like i don't have any yeah, you, <laughs> I, I need to die you, you can now. either you can either change the longevity or change the amount that you have but <laughs> that's a little a little too morbid all right fishbowl i want to talk about everyone's favorite topic if you just went out into the streets like jimmy kimmel and asked folks what they care about most in this world, what would they say? That's right. They'd say audits. They'd say audits. I want to talk about audits here. There was a there's an article a couple of weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal. It was called Weak Oversight Plagues Audits of Billions in Private Assets. So I think there's some interesting facts in here that I actually didn't know about the audit industry. I didn't know much about the audit industry, to be, to be honest. So the other point here is that to dig into my, my Dr. Doom lore, he had nothing to do with this. But just the general census that we're 
we're getting more and more indicators that we're near the top of something potentially is if you look at some of the markers that we saw like 20 years ago and every time is different, but I'm not talking about the, the top of the uh, dot-com boom. You had a few things. One was concentration, right? So if you looked at the S&P 500 back in 2000, around the five, for top five stocks were on 18%, right? Of the market, which just means there's a bit more fragility. Right now you have about 23%. So the top five stocks, if you, I'm including the two Googles as one entity, um, the top five stocks are about 23% of the S&P 500. You've got uh, the breaking up of big tech. So back then there was like the, the DOJ, Department of Justice was all up in Bill Gates drawers trying to get Microsoft situated. And today you've got Facebook, Amazon, Apple, et cetera, all under scrutiny, excessive valuations, which we talked about enough. And then audit malfunctions, right? Was the other one. And now back then there was, you had the whole like Enron debacle, the telecom companies, MCI, WorldCom, there was a whole bunch going on there. So in addition to learning some new things here, which I'm about to edumacate you on, there's also just that, that sense. Now into the article. Let's hit the meat. Here's some things I didn't know. So the audit industry, auditing industry used to police itself. But after all the accounting scandals from the early 2000s, that stopped. So that, what, what I mean by police itself basically meant that one auditor would, um, would audit another auditor to see how good they were. And so you could have a lot of backroom deals basically where it's like, well, I'm, if uh, Skippy and I, Skippy and Dougals are friends and you're like, well, Dougals, why don't you go and like, make sure that Skippy's like stuff is yeah. good and publish it and be like, oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, I saw some, some blemishes, but otherwise. Were they typically, uh, at least from different firms or was it often from the same firm? No, different firms. So you'd have one okay. firm auditing a different firm, but now the, the public company audits are overseen by um, an SEC appointed quote unquote watchdog, which is the public company accounting oversight board rolls off the tongue. Um, and so now public companies at least have this third party, right? That is appointed by SEC to take a look at them, but private companies still police each other. And then they also generally don't have any public disclo- disclosure that comes of it. So the wall street journal just kind of dug in based on information that it could get, or it could find to see how good these audits um, are. So that's what I want to chat about. Is that cool? I, I mean, I'm just riveted over here. I know I can tell. I can tell by your your droopy eyes. <laughs> All right. So the vast majority of U.S. audits, which is more than five million private companies, and they have billions of dollars in revenue, fall under this self-pleasing system. And this includes thousands of pension funds, endowments, local governments, charities, government grants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the journal did this analysis. It looked at 659 firms and their assessments of other firms, uh, known as peer reviews. They basically like uh, they scraped this website to find this data because um, it's it's not just out there in any sort of report. So it's a three percent sample of what's out there, but you know it's a sample. So when they they looked at this, they looked at it from 2018 to 2020, and it showed that seven percent got failing grades, and fewer than four out of five. So 80% roughly uh, passing score with the remaining 14% getting the middle. There's like this middle grade. That's like you passed, but you did it. You did it with some deficiencies, but you're still a passing grade. Right. So basically other firms looking at other firms are just saying like, everything's fine here. Like nothing to see here. Inspections of the, the top 100 firms by public. Like if you look at the, that public sec appointed agency rate more than a quarter of their audits, right. Of having serious deficiencies. So the point, 
the point basically here was there's a self-policing system. Everything used to be self-policed 20 years ago. They changed that so public's now not self-policed. And when you look at the, the non-self-policed system, they find a heck of a lot of serious deficiencies. And in the private market, they don't find any. That's, the, that's kind of like the takeaway that I found here. And I thought this was, I thought this was really interesting. Um, and so the audit industry needs some help. Um, yes, I'm just riveted over here. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen you so not engaged. <laughs> like, I like it. I think I could see the importance. I love that you said, like, the point is, because I was going to go, like, why should I care? But I, I still, I still kind of, I mean, I, I understand why I should care. Is there, like, a fix you're proposing? Is there, like, a, well, I mean, is there I, a better I, I way to say, do this? If you look at what we did for public markets versus private markets, you have a third party that's not yeah. a part of the system that makes sure that the audits that are being done are legit. Right. I think that's that's effectively it, because even though these are not public companies today, and so the money that we are putting into the public market, that's not these organizations. These are the organizations that invest in, right? Um, the they could be LPs or limited partners, right? Yeah. In funds that then do invest in private companies. They could be charities that uh, are have economic infrastructure. Right, that influence our economic infrastructure. They could be private companies that will be public soon, yeah. right? And they might, yep. especially now with all the the spackety spack spectacular disaster nonsense that's going on right now, you can go public without actually having all the the deep due diligence, right? I mean, we all know that that's going to fall apart anyway. But I think that we can't, we shouldn't ignore the audit problem just because these aren't public companies because they actually do influence what's happening in the public markets and our economic infrastructure. Yeah, that's well, why I could... care. If you're concerned about audits, I mean, I think you should do the Dougal's thing and buy a bunch of Chinese companies. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm sorry. I've got to refocus. Uh, all right. Can I pull, can I go to the fishbowl? Yes, you can. And uh, shoot you some quizzes. All right. So this is from the Economic Innovation Group, and it's about inclusive wealth building. Uh, they break down wealth generated from assets by geography and it's actually really well done in my opinion right so this just to make to clarify make sure i understand so when we've talked about the r is greater than g return on assets versus return from labor you're saying like income generated from assets is that r component it's like the the dividends that you get from stocks you maybe so you're here, about to go into that but here's that, their definition and okay. i haven't read i haven't read the book you're referencing to in a couple of years so i think it's the same but they say Income generated from assets for this purpose is income from dividends, interest, or rent. So landlords yes. generate yeah. a fair amount of money uh, from this. So like a capital, capital gain. Gains. It, capital gains, capital gains are not included here. Okay. Okay. Um, and they say one-fifth of personal income in the United States is derived from dividends, interest, or rent. So that that first high-level stat is, That's is big. fascinating to me. That's big. Yeah. Wow. And then they break it down based on different regions about how that disparity is. So first quiz is, what do you think the average asset income is per capita in the U.S.? 10000 Gosh, your money. About $9,000 nationwide. And this is one where the average is going to be so skewed by yeah. the top 1%. But that's still an interesting figure. If you go to a place like... They compared some counties in Cleveland, Ohio, or some different neighborhoods in Cleveland, Ohio. The the top earning neighborhood was making twenty seven thousand a year. 
per capita, the bottom earning neighborhood was making one dollar per year. I mean, what? like the dis- wow. the disparity here yeah. is. I mean, crazy. I, you know, when when you look at participation in these, as we've talked about before, in the markets or in like rents, I assume is like owning land or owning buildings or something. Yeah, I, uh, it's not going to be. It's not going to be much. Wow. But seeing the numbers, that's so stark. Well, so this is why I wanted to talk to you about this because like we talked about, we've talked so much about trying to get more people to like participate and use the possibility to generate wealth from owning assets and smartly owning assets like equities and or land or whatever to try and help with that wealth gap, I'll call it. But it's, it's just a really tough problem to solve. So not surprisingly, this gap has grown significantly. They look at three time frames. basically 1969, we can call it 1970 for these purposes, 1990 and uh, 2019. And so the gap in 1969 between the least asset income per capita county and the most asset income per capita county was like 13,000 bucks. Now it's 160,000 bucks. When you think about regions, you'll get this immediately, but like parts of the country might come to mind in terms of having the greatest gap between high and low. And what, what level is this like state? Uh, it's County. In some cases, even city. I don't I mean, even know the names of, of, I don't even know the yeah, names of county. Just say the city. That's why I said I'd say city. like New York of the big, like big cities. I'd probably say LA, New York, San Francisco would probably be the ones that come top of mind for me. So you nailed all that, but what's, um, if you look at a state level, the two biggest gaps in lowest county in the state to highest county in the state are Wyoming and Colorado. And what happens here is you have these uh, resort towns. Like Aspen. Yeah. Kind you of, have these yeah. resort Jackson towns. Jackson Hole. And so that happens, that happens in Southern Florida too. It happens in all these, it happens in Tahoe. It happens in all these places. And of course that makes perfect sense, right? So like Aspen is a great example. You have people working at the restaurant in Aspen or having the less glamorous job that are ski bums or like the outdoors and they're barely scraping by and probably don't own many assets. And then you have people that own the $5 million vacation home. So yeah, that disparity is actually greatest in Wyoming where the, the lowest income County in terms of income per assets is, you know, some small rural community. And then you have Jackson hole and the grand Tetons and stuff. Interesting stuff. I I won't talk your ear off about it, but I just thought it was a really well done paper and it's fun to dive into. So I'll put it on the Twitter. Does it give the the highest per capita income from assets? Uh, So that's that's Manhattan. Let me get you that number. That's uh, $64,000 per capita in 2019. Followed by San Mateo, Palm Beach, Florida, San Francisco, Fairfield, Connecticut. I mean, you you basically nailed all those with your uh, top cities. Whew. Thanks for sharing. And then the the lowest income one is like the Bronx, El Paso, Texas, and another small community in Texas. Again, not super surprising. Seeing the man here, just hearing those numbers. Well, just think about that. I mean, if I have sixty thousand bucks show up in my bank account every year doing nothing. I know it's expensive to live in Manhattan. I mean, I'm not trying to put that aside, but life starts to get to get a lot easier than if I have $3,000. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, absolutely. And it, 
what it's uh what it's getting my brain going with today and i wasn't even thinking about talking about this today but i've read a couple articles recently that were basically about the um the decrease in importance of the job yeah. based on generations and and then the the other concept that's within that is uh you know what we've seen that's happening recently is we're at a time where the unemployment rate is high and also the number of open positions are high because people are like I don't want to take that job there's a number of reasons but one of them is like I don't I'm not going back to that job right um I want better for myself you know and yeah. and if I think about wealth disparity and what you just described with the the higher proportion of income that's coming from assets and you look at on the the labor wages side there are less people that are employed and getting labor and those people are not the people that are it's not like bezos is unemployed it, it it's people that are that are on probably closer to the the bottom the bottom side of the folks that are getting income from assets and so it just exacerbates the problem right i mean that that's a that's a flywheel that's going to move in the negative direction ooh man you got my why why now i'm sad well, I'm not trying to make you sad. I mean, the optimistic point of view for for us and our listeners is like this is might be why we're you're fascinated with investing. This is definitely part of why I'm fascinated with investing. The optionality that comes with generating more income while you sleep um, allows you to say, "I don't want that job." You know, like it, my wife, who finds all this stuff incredibly boring, is the one that actually sent me this an article that referenced a study and then I dove deep into the study, but she immediately was like, this is interesting stuff, you know, like this is, and then we did some back of the envelope calculations on like what this number is for us right now and what this number will be for us going forward. And gosh, if we decided to do the, the heavy real estate investing, which comes with a lot of leverage that I don't take on in the equity space, like you could, you could grow this number significantly. That's another reason why so many people fall in love with the real estate game is because you leverage up and you start to feel like you have a much larger ability to generate income from assets because of that debt. Not my cup of tea. No, me, me either. But, um, but I get it's, it. a, it's a good study. I'm totally with you, man. I'm going to, I'm going to pull on the word leverage right now to talk about yeah. debt again. I'm just I'm full of exciting topics today. Um, so in my fishbowl, I'm going to talk about debt just for a second. And not US debt, although I'll mention that a little bit, but Japanese debt. Ooh, I want to we're do, going, we're going here. We're well, I keep hearing about this and I keep not seeing you there. Japan over the last 30 years, I want I need to do, actually probably more like past 50 years. I want to go real, real deep. Um, I, I can't now, but I'm saying like research wise, we, we hit on high level points around, around the bubble, around the, the pop, the stagnation and stuff. And I just want to go real deep. So I'm, I'm probably going to, I'm going to try and find some, uh, some books and studies and whatnot to go look at it. And you'll, you'll get excited when I bring that back. But anyway, today, Japanese debt, I want to talk about this because I came across this article again, Wall Street Journal, Japan's love of debt offers a view of US future. That's a catchy title. I don't know if that's fully true, but I'll give you the reasons why they think it's the case. So what what they're trying to paint here is a lesson of what happens when your economy depends on government spending yeah basically uh, and therefore if you're dependent on government spending you're dependent on more and more debt that's how at least in the japanese case it happened the, some of the stats they give so debt crossed gdp in japan meaning the amount of debt that the government holds versus the gdp of the country about 20 years ago so early 2000s and now it's approaching 2x gdp japan on its 
balance sheet has two times it's what it produces, right? Consumes, earns all the GDP stuff on an annual basis. It's just a heck of a lot. It's the most indebted, at least uh, major industrial uh, yeah. country in the world. Uh, to give you some reference points for the U.S., the U.S. right now is about 125% of GDP, which yeah. is really high for us. Um, oh, we we were below, high. yeah, we were below GDP until a few years ago. I want to say 18, maybe 19, 18, 19, like somewhere in there, I think is when we crossed the 100% mark. What they're saying is that companies in Japan are basically sitting on too much savings. And so if, if they want the economy to grow, the company, companies are not going to do it. This reminded me of, they may not be completely linked, but it reminded me of a conversation we had, I think it was a couple months back around the cross shareholding of Japanese companies. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. And what that is, for those that didn't listen to that episode, it basically says if I'm, and I'm, I'm making up the numbers here and making up the, um, the actual companies, but just to give you a sense of what it means, if you have a Mitsubishi and a Toyota, right, both Japanese organizations, and Mitsubishi owns 15% of Toyota and Toyota owns 30% of Mitsubishi, effectively, there's, there's less impetus for like aggressive investment and growth of those companies because they just like scratch each other's backs and they can they'll know that my friend owns 30% of this and he's not going to kick me out of my job. And so I just want to, I want to make sure I sit back, earn a cushy, like living, no regrets. And there's a big pushback in Japan. They call it Japan Inc. There's a lot of pushback of saying we need our companies to grow more. So um, they're like more aggressive takeovers of external equity or external funds coming in to get Japanese equity for that reason. But anyway, this reminded me of that because of that, of the savings, like companies just kind of sitting on their money and not investing. And so therefore, what the government is saying is they're going to they're going to invest for them. So so that that's those are some of the facts. What I the one of the one of the other uh, elements that was in here that I found to be interesting was Japan is saying it's actually cool. It's fine that we've all, we've got all this debt and there are two reasons why. One is all the debt is in yen, the Japanese currency. Yeah. Which right? is a big and, deal. Which is a big deal. Same with the US, yep. right? So they're saying, so that's one reason. And, and the reason so for, for folks that are listening, the reason why that's important is because you can print more, basically. Um, yeah. And then the, the second reason is that half of it, they're saying half of their debt doesn't count because the owner of that debt is the central bank. And so what happens is the Japanese, Japanese interest rate is basically zero and they put out these bonds. And since it's paying zero, no one's buying the bonds except the central bank. And so the government owns half of its own, like a, a part of the government owns half of its own debt. So what, what they are saying is that it's in our own currency so we can control and we actually own it. There is some dangerous thinking in this, but that, 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 that's what they're saying. Uh, so can we try and this would help me, but I think it would help the listeners. Like, can we try and give like a personal finance example that could relate to that? I mean, the the other part of the government owning half of the debt is is tough to like give a a real life example to, you know, this thread may not this line of thinking may not work, but I'm going to yeah. go down it and we'll figure out if it does. Because the 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 way that immediately comes to mind that might fit into that would have to do with marriage. So I have a bunch of debt that my wife is she's the financier of effectively. And so your unit, as it exists okay. today, you're saying, yeah, I'm in, uh, yeah, I'm I'm in debt, right? And half my debt is in uh, credit cards and auto loans and stuff. 
but the other half is actually my wife lending me money. And so like that half doesn't actually count. Right. And this, this is a situation and this is where I think the whole analogy probably really breaks, but, um, but at the highest level, maybe we can, we can tie it. It's a situation that as you've stated about debt generally in the market before is actually perfectly fine until it's not. And then it's very bad. Right. Um, and, and this, right. Am I, does that make sense? It does, but it's uh let me play devil's advocate here and, and we can just uh, see where this goes. So, okay, spouse one loans spouse two ten thousand dollars. Yep. And then they also have ten thousand dollars on their credit card, right? And then their personal finance world blows up. Uh, let's say the guy has a debt. He can't pay back any of the twenty thousand dollars he owns. Um he's say unemployed and and has no great prospects right so he's gonna effectively default on on his debts uh the one to his wife there's not going to be collectors calling the house or anything because they're just going to fight about that internally but she's not getting her money back well this this is where Let's take this out of your world because I don't I don't want to start. Well, it's not, no, it's not my there. world, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just saying spouse yeah. one, spouse two, yeah. right? That is true unless spouse two is now actually saying, I actually need that money. And so you're saying it's only internal, but it, it, that internal could get to a level of tension that it, well, it breaks. And, and so, I'm not saying this. The Japanese government <laughs> say this. I mean, like, what's this? That's why. Maybe that's what, that, we that's when the analogy. Yeah, that's when the analogy, like, I think starts to break because I don't I don't know what that means in the government world where, where this starts to become bad in in the government world is is it goes back to the same place we've talked about in the U.S. around interest rates. Right. If, if they have zero percent interest rates, then all good. But if interest rates rise dramatically, right, because this, this is also a world where they've had very low inflation. You would expect that yeah. this level of spending would increase inflation, but it hasn't, right? They're still, they're under 2%. And so, but if inflation for some reason starts to take off and then you, interest rate starts to go, that may start to cause some, some weirdness um, and tension, right? That exists there, but uh, it's not good. I don't know if the, I don't know if the, the personal to the government like fully plays in, but, uh, but in both situations, if you take it at a high level, it is fine. So long as everything is good, everything's tranquil. It's the, the moment where tensions rise to the point where somebody actually needs that money for something and the other can't provide it, that it just becomes interesting. I don't know what happens in the government world. It might be nothing, right? But I, but I, but I think that's when you can say it's not all okay. Yeah, I think I need to better understand how each government agency in that example is um, thinking about their liabilities and and credits you know like is the the government agency that this debt is actually owed to do they really think that they will be repaid or i mean i'd assume they do it's funny because you go back to some of the uh financial crises that have happened in the u.s and the reason that when covid came around both sides of Congress and the Senate were happy to write large stimulus checks is because there are ways to spend your way out of a financial crisis. And then the future growth coming out of that increases your tax revenue so greatly that paying back the what seemed like ludicrous spending at the time is no problem. And so when that works, I mean, like the Keynesian economics crowd will 
argue in a way that that's a wise use of that that's the role the government should play and it's exactly what you're saying here that's great as long as it works but at some point that won't work and then the wheels really fall off in the last 90 years in the u.s that's effectively worked with every financial crisis we've had we've found a way to spend our way out of it maybe with the exception of some of the stuff that happened in the 80s where we did tighten our belts and raise interest rates the paul volcker years i don't know you've got me thinking here yeah. i wish i had something smart to say yeah i i think this is again i as i mentioned i want to dive into japan a heck of a lot more because i only know like headline level items of, of what kind of occurred there but it's fascinating even this is the concept of the headlines where you have this this country where the u.s was like frightened of japan becoming the global superpower in the 70s and 80s because of how quickly it was growing you know by the end of the 80s it was something like the land in tokyo was like four times worth like four times the land in all the u.s it was like there's yeah. like all these very bubblicious right good bubble gum as well very bubblicious but then when that bubble burst they just had 30 years of or like 20 years at least of like stagnancy and i think only recently have things started to improve but I, it's fascinating to look at what they did back then which i haven't looked at deeply right back in the early 90s and what impact that has had versus what you've seen us do and what the different macro and macro and micro uh, situations were so i i want to dive back in i and let's we'll talk about it at some point in the future and we can maybe have a bit more of an intelligent like point of view uh, i think on that uh, to think through what the different assets liabilities what does it mean to owe the different part of the government i think your question is great is there an expectation of payback and is there a point where you have to get paid back like i i yeah. wonder in japanese law there could be something like that right okay i know in the u.s like there are there are laws that state what the the powers like the fed right our central bank true can only do but so much the treasury can only do but so much and is there a point where outside of just changing the law right is there a point where you you actually hit those limits and have to do something in a crisis know. that just gets ripped up i mean that's like the government spending cap that that congress changes every three months <laughs> i mean right <laughs> but no this is we we should maybe bring an expert on and just talk japan japan government spending japan debt japan equities yeah. that'd be pretty fun yeah, yeah that yeah, would be would be a lot of fun i think you actually have someone in your rolodex if i remember correctly you want to know why investing is maddening i do <laughs> you don't though <laughs> because sometimes when the world's brightest minds turned $70,000 into $264 million. The advice they give for you, Dougals, is, well, I'll read the whole quote. This is Ted Welsher, who works for Berkshire Hathaway now, has run hedge funds in the past, very smart guy, uh, one of Buffett's right-hand people and one of the successors uh, when Buffett, unfortunately, I was going to say moves on, but Buffett retired. not move on. <laughs> yeah, he's not retiring either. He will leave the company when he dies. So he's, he's going to retire from the planet. Yeah. So Ted Welser turned without the shenanigans that Peter Thiel used to turn his IRA account into $5 billion. He, he used normal investing tactics available to anyone in the world through public equities to turn $70,000 into $264 million. Here's the quote. Walsh just spends a lot of his time reading and thinking and studying companies and industries to find things in financial markets that others don't seem to be seeing. And then he says, for people who can't do that, index funds are the answer. <laughs>
<laughs> so it's what is what we've talked about. Yeah, it is. It so is, much. but it's it's so maddening. It's like it, uh, if you would have invested in index funds over that same time period, you would turn that seventy k into like one point six million. Awesome, totally great, everything's fine. But as a person, you're like, no, I don't want one point six million. I want two hundred and sixty four million. I want to know the secret sauce to that. Um, I just the truth. The truth is, is you should hilarious. want that one point six million. Like you that. Should. That is the that well, is no, the truth. I I'd get, I'd be stronger than that. The truth is, if you strive for the two hundred sixty-four million, you'll end up with eighty-eight k or something. Oh, that, that was Dougal more generous than I was. That was zero. I mean, you'll end up with something well less than one point. Uh, or, we, we, yeah, one point six million. We were just talking last week about about the people that were jumping into Tontine, that SPAC, the Ackman SPAC, right, yeah, with yeah. options, and ended up with zero. Like yep. took seven figures down to zero. Yep. That that's that's where you get because oftentimes now, as you were you were mentioning, right, this is over the course of decades, right? That this was built. It's still a lot of it's still incredible returns over that period in order to get yeah. there. But you're talking about 40 years. Whereas when people are often saying, I want that 264 million, they're saying, I want it tomorrow. And therefore they're taking on leverage bets. They're they're making like zero or like double or nothing, constant double or nothing bets. It's yep, the Russian yep. roulette from Taleb, right? That we've talked yep. about. And that that's when it gets real dangerous. It's when it gets real dangerous. Buffett and Munger have talked about this a lot. And I think it's really, really what they talk about a lot of things that are very wise. But I think this is super wise, where they basically said some version of I'm paraphrasing, we've always known we were going to be rich. It's the people that wanted to get rich and wanted to get rich quick that are no longer with us like when they talk when they say with us they're talking about invest not people that have passed away necessarily but people that that were also strong investors but are no longer at the top of the heap perhaps um so you're trying to get me fired up Diggles. go for you, it you tried you tried to do it i love that approach that's the right approach but if buffett had only lived to be 55 which some people do some people have a heart attack at 55 then then buffett's basically never discussed in the investing community i mean the the real niche folks would know about warren buffett but that's it not everyone is blessed with a an investing time horizon of like 40 years even let alone 60 or 80 you know like that's true he still would have simple. he still would have had an impressive track record of investing it would have been super impressive but, yeah but it it wouldn't he never would have become the world's richest person by any at any point and the the track record to your point is like sorry the longevity of the track record is what makes him who he is both i think from a from the size of the of the nugget right that he has and from the amount of time that he is going back to just the compounding even if it's not money is like compounding profile is another thing right you're just yeah. talked about more right so agreed with that but still but still um, and buffett also has heck of a lot more money than munger because munger's trying to buy boats and stuff all right yeah poor him right he, he like, actually he's only got a yacht what, like single I mean, digit billions double digit yeah, billions uh, i'm talking rough. triple it's digit billions life, all right yeah. yeah he he actually was smart enough to live in la on the beach rather than in yeah, exactly. omaha yeah, exactly <laughs> what a dummy um well so when i think of 97 year old billionaires in la i think of uh street fashion how about you Dougals? Oh, me too. 
All right, we never. Got, we're, never. We're, I'd, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> I'm dumping, jumping knee deep into the rabbit hole here, and uh, this is this is what I find fascinating. You find audits fascinating. This is what I find fascinating. <laughs> Our listeners might find neither of these things fascinating. So bear with me for five minutes. <laughs> and, Go for uh, it. And we'll see what feedback we get. All right. So there's a guy named Bobby Hundreds. You can buy his merch on thehundreds.com. It's streetwear fashion. Uh, he has a following. I've never been like really into it, but I've always been aware. He published an article that says, The Street Does Not Exist as a title with the subtitle, MetaWare and the Future of Fashion. This came out August 12th of 2021. This is absolutely fascinating. I don't know if he's like the best sales guy ever. I don't know if I'm just uh, losing my mind. But the article does this. He outlines some of the culture movements happening in 1999, like Woodstock, the Matrix uh, film coming out, everyone's fear of Y2K. And he builds a story around how that enabled like a street culture and a streetwear movement that enabled his brand to run. Um, in addition to that, things that, other things that are happening at that time is like more free-flowing exchange of ideas with things like a blogger platform with Napster coming out. So Napster, he says, is not really about free music. It's about taking music to the internet rather than distribution. Yeah, it, it, yep. it like pushes that distribution thing, right? So he, he kind of builds that foundation, talks about ale, chat rooms, everything else, ties back to some key concepts there. And then he fast forwards to today and talks about the challenges with being in fashion right now um, in terms of the impact on global society as it relates to his belief with global, global warming and everything else. And I don't tend to be an expert here, but he says like it's just incredibly time consuming or sorry, incredibly resource consuming to create like even a basic t-shirt like organic cotton takes all sorts of water uh, to do the dyes that they use in t-shirts are bad everything else he goes out of his way to say a company like patagonia who puts a cre an incredible amount of emphasis on their supply chain and trying to reduce their impact on the on the world footprint still i mean they still have jets and boats flying across the pacific ocean yeah. and there, there, like, there's like a there's a a floor basically is what is what he's saying to the amount of damage that will be done so yeah. there's always some right yep there's and you can you can decrease what you're doing but there's a floor to it and this is related the new york times had an article i don't know if it was legit or not but it, it those like cotton bags that people take into the grocery store it basically said those are worse than plastic bags because in order to reduce the environmental impact it takes to create one of those things you had to use it like 54,000 times, which it was some math around. If you use this at the grocery store every day for the next, I don't know, however many next 80 years or something, then you get your environmental impact of one bag. But that's but you not, feel good. I, I mean, I guess. And who knows? That's like the hot dog thing. Like, do I believe any of those numbers? I'm not sure that I do. But what's so interesting is then somehow he ties this to the fact that as the world is evolving today, and this is where he talks about the matrix a little bit. He's like, sometimes you're sitting at dinner and you're not as engaged with the conversation you're having in real life. You're thinking about, oh gosh, I was doing that thing on my phone 
you know, I was, my digital life had this thing going on and I'm really excited. Like sometimes I'm more excited and I say me, but I, I mean him really, he, he gets more excited to get back into the digital world than he is in the, the real life world. And so he uses that to argue that our lives are changing in a way where that's becoming more important to us. Like there's this hybrid mix of the real world, the digital world, and then maybe down the road, it's the metaverse or it's the VR world or whatever. Yep. It, again, this is where the craziness starts. He, he makes that argument that life is tilted that direction and the stuff that's happened in COVID has even made the digital world more important to us because we spend more time over Zoom or chatting with friends we might not even know well, you know, the, our digital life friends. And do you know where that goes, Dougal? Do you know where he takes the, these random thoughts? I can guess, but tell me. I mean, so he says the future of fashion is, uh, well, and, digital. and fashion, yeah, the future of fashion is digital, right? NFTs. Do you know how he made a quick buck off this? Yeah, he, he sold some NFTs. Yeah. yeah, there you go. There you go. This thesis has existed for a little while. I mean, he pointed out, right, the late 90s. Uh, and what what came out of that time period were uh, a few metaverse companies, right? With that that word originating in the 1990s, Neil Stevenson, Snow Crash. Uh, read it if you haven't. Gosh, you're good. Science fiction. Um, but a few companies came out of that, uh, creating these metaverses where you can live in this other world, right? So there's like IMVU, which is still around. Second Life came out of this. A whole bunch of failed ones. Um, and the the thought that you can either blend your real life and the digital life or just create a new digital life is yeah it's been it's been around for a while second life in particular runs a they have a full economy where like if you want to if you want to go back to what i would say is like the origin of the some version of an nft you yeah. you go there they you can you can create whatever you want you own it right it has code on it you sell it for linden dollars they have and then yeah. you can exchange that for real dollars so it is a thing where I've seen at least in this world um, where you hit the barrier is this natural need for human beings to feel each other socially. And for some, they found that they can either replicate that or create that for the first time in the digital world. And others have not been able to find that. And But for the masses, I haven't seen it where it's gotten to the point where it, it feels as real to like the everyday person to do something digitally as to do something in real life. We might get there with, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and his, uh, uh, his, his metaverse that he's trying to create, but, yeah. but that's kind of it. Like people dive in cause it sounds interesting and then you try it, but then you're like, actually that real shirt though. Right. So we, we just oh. have to, we have to break that barrier. Well, and I, you say we have to, I don't even know that I want to. No, in order um, for this to happen. Sorry. We, we don't have to. In, in order to solve the Japanese debt crisis, we really need to. Um, I, I meant for, to, uh, to tip the scale, to cross the chasm, you can choose whatever you want on this. Like that, that's the thing that needs to, needs to happen. Yeah. I love your thoughts here. What, what if there's, I think the thing that got me about this is one, he did a really good sales job. I was like ready to buy some streetwear. NFTs, which is hilarious because that is completely <laughs> worthless. Like, you I don't even have how much you got. How much you got? I don't have a digital <laughs> life. Like, I don't even need some digital fashion. But I don't think of it like I don't. I don't know that you're saying it's black and white. But I kind of hear you being like, "Oh yeah, 
the masses might shift to the digital world. I don't think of it necessarily that way. I think the percentage of time that is relevant in our lives in the digital space might be growing slightly. So it's a stupid example and I don't use Facebook, but some people do like if, if, 5% of some people's life is in the Facebook, Instagram, whatever else world today. It's not like the metaverse in terms of a sci-fi novel, but it is like there's a different persona over here and that's important to me. And I could see the the piece of that pie growing. So maybe that's 10% of someone's status or belief in who they are is like in the digital world and 90% in the real world. And, And I could see that over the next 10 years or who knows what the time frame is like shifting i could see that i mean 20 percent. do you buy any of that yeah i i I think that's right that the it's even like e-commerce versus real world commerce that it's not that you buy everything right online but but it's it's increasing its share i i completely buy into that i think where where i still have a question mark around it is when it comes to things like fashion when it comes to something that you that that needs to get big enough for it to be like a legit like business or whatever yeah i think that it people have to care enough about the shirt that's on their avatar or like their whatever it might be enough to like invest there but my hypothesis there is that i think that that can get big but i think that it has to be the percentage can't be a minority percentage I think the percentage has to be the overwhelming percentage. That's my hypothesis. And I think that that is true for certain demographics. I'll say for individuals that may not have the, the means or agency or capability for whatever reason to go and participate in that same thing as much in the real world, right? That you can participate, you can participate in that in, in this world. And there's also a time component that comes along to it, yeah. but I, I, and, but that, that's my, that's what I think. I just think it has to be, I think you're right that it's not a hundred percent, zero percent, as I may have framed it before, but I think it has to be a very significant chunk in order for that business to be real. I'll say I, I've seen this play out. Um, you know, I, I see YouTube stars that are famous because of uh, different video games they play. And then their marketing teams are brilliant. They can like brand outfits in that video game and then i see eight-year-olds go buy those outfits in some cases with real money to get aware of that t-shirt in the game they're playing so they can show their friends and like i never would have really thought about that but that does make perfect sense that's the same if you call it a status symbol that's the same status symbol of like having the cool nike whatever in real life because you're interacting with a different crowd in the digital world and so of course for the people that those status symbols appeal to they're gonna appeal in both worlds i'd say i don't know total rabbit hole here i just think it was it really made me think and i like stuff that does that yeah i i it it is it's interesting it's been it's just been decades now it's been like the push here do you remember when uh remember vr in the 90s like when virtual reality was trying to become a thing in the 90s and then like it fell off a cliff like we've been trying this some version of this um, for a bit. Uh, it's it's we now have much more capability for it to be more mainstream than it has been in the past. And I in a decade, that's going to be exponentially more than it is even today. So we'll see where it goes. 
Well, and there is going to be someone that figures this out. Like, there's a video game. I think it's called Roblox, um, and they IPO'd recently. Yeah. And they have some way to buy. You can buy like the digital real estate. I think with an NFT in that game. And if that becomes a incredibly popular space, you almost charge rent for people to use that aspect of the game. And like, you're a digital landlord. And I. I mean, it's way too complex for me to figure out and be good at, but someone's going to figure that out. And to your point, if it gets critical mass, they're, they're going to make tons and tons of money off smart bets there. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's the way that Second Life is also organized. I mean, the majority, so the economy was based off of both virtual goods, like the virtual goods that you buy and sell, shirts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But then there was a significant chunk of it that was landlords. So people would buy what they call an island you'd buy this island you'd parcel it up and then people would rent part of it and build houses on it and whatnot and there are people making millions of dollars by by being that virtual landlord still today still well i, I don't know what i don't have as yeah. much insight there into was. Yeah. what happens there but but there were at the time i think uh so if we never have a podcast again it's just because i got lost in my uh digital life the- and uh <laughs> <laughs> I stopped when you, working when you have a landlord. Yeah. <laughs> like and and you know what's great about that? Biden can't tell me I can't evict people in my digital life. Anything else in your fishbowl, sir? No. Uh fun times. Yeah. All right, let's let's wrap it. Everyone knows how to get in touch with us at Skippy Doogles on Twitter, skippydoogles at gmail.com. Hit us up with a listener mail. Let us know what questions, thoughts you have. And please rate and review as always. Yep. Someone please send something that says Dougal's audits are boring. So we never have to talk about that again. <laughs> please, please, listeners. All right. Peace. I'm sorry. <laughs>